And this same mission, the same plan that takes place in Acts chapter 2 is the same mission, the same plan that God has for you and I today. This is not simply us looking at some advancement of troops to happen back in World War One or World War Two, and we look at it and we're like, yes, look at the Allies. They're finally beginning to actually take land. Isn't this cool? And we just sit there and kind of clap our hands and we're like, you know, the patriotic blood is just flowing and we're like, this is great. This is America. You know, we come in and we solve the world wars at the end. That's not the idea here. The truths that Luke is seeking to communicate to you and I are written so that you and I would realize and embrace this mission as our own. So that you and I would seek to advance this mission today in our own lives. Truth advances. It advances 2,000 years ago. It advanced 1,000 years ago. It advanced 500 years ago. It advanced 40 years ago. And it advances today. Why? Because it's God's paid for with the blood of Christ and accomplished through the Spirit's enabling. And those three things are things that you and I still have. If you want to take your copy of God's Word and let's read together Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 41. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they appeared, there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there, was, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocked, saying, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maid servants, and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, by God to you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held to it by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue's work Tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and whose tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of the body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and I'll make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call. And with many other sign words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I believe that the theme of the passage is this. You and I advance the gospel through the Holy Spirit's effectual working in your life. We advance the gospel through the Holy Spirit's effectual working in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are fact that you have revealed yourself and that your word is powerful, that it is effective, and that it draws people to yourself, and that you allow us to be a part of your work in this world. We pray that you would use your truth to convict our hearts and to help us to have a greater passion and a greater desire to see others come to know you. In your name we pray. Amen. <coughs> As he starts off, I believe that the idea is this, that God reveals himself. And I think that you need to think of this in two different ways. God is revealing himself to the believers. He's revealing himself to his disciples. But he's also revealing himself to the surrounding community, to those who are unbelievers. 
how does he reveal himself? He reveals himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, something new happens. Something unique happens. Something that has never taken place before occurs in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells his people. And people start speaking in tongues. And this is a public testimony to the world that's watching that God is seeking to reveal himself to people. It is a reminder to the disciples. They've been told time and time again, both while Jesus was walking with them before his death and then after his death, that he is going to leave them, but that the Holy Spirit will come and they're supposed to wait for him. And when he comes, they're going to go out and they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so this serves as a reminder, a revelation, a portrayal to them that God's mission is still to advance. You can't put this mission on the back burner and just let it simmer for the next 10 years. This is something that takes place now. It's that important. And so God reveals himself, and he reveals himself through the Holy Spirit's arrival. And God does not choose to currently reveal himself in this manner. In chapter 2, what's happening is the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells people. And there's all sorts of different language that's used in this passage to demonstrate the presence of God. There's a sound that comes from heaven of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. You get the feeling as you read verse 2 that there is definitely sound that's there, but it's almost like something that is filling the room so much so that it's palpable, like you can actually feel the presence. But he goes on from there and he says that not only that, but there's some, sort, some type of divided tongues of fire that land on the heads of each one of these disciples. God is telling them, I am real, I have a mission, I have a plan, my Holy Spirit has come, and you are to advance my mission. So all this happens, and God has revealed himself to them. But his revelation allows them to go and to speak in new languages. And so they leave that room that they'd all gathered in, and this this shocking occurrence somehow draws the attention of the crowds. So whatever happened up in that room was such a marvelous demonstration of God's grandeur, God's glory, God's supremacy, that it drew crowds to that place. Look at verse 5. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Why? Because there's people from all sorts of different places, and these Jews have been dispersed, and they had never all been regathered to their current home, Israel. And as a result, what happens when you have kids that move into a foreign country? Their primary 
primary language after a couple of generations is no longer their parents' primary language. They began to embrace the language and the cultures of these other areas, but they still had a religious commitment to Judaism. So they would come back for significant religious holidays to their home, to Jerusalem. And so they're all gathered there. They don't know the language that these guys are speaking. And yet these guys are all speaking in such a way that all these people from all these nations that are listed understand them in their native tongue, in the language that they have now learned as exile Jews, as exile or proselytes who are not Jewish. And they're sitting there going, how in the world does this happen? These guys are Galileans. These guys are not educated people. These are not people who have come from you know, the foreign countries that we've come from. These people should know like Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And that's it. They have no other means. They didn't have, you know, little apps that could teach them all sorts of other languages. But like, this is a significant act of God. God is revealing himself. And so God continues to use his revelation to encourage and equip our efforts to make him known. And it's drastically different. God does not reveal himself to us by a room that has a significant sound coming from heaven and a presence that's so palpable you can feel that the crowds from around our community come running to the outside of our church building wondering what's going on at Emmanuel Baptist Church. That does not happen. It will not happen. But God does reveal himself to us. And he does so through his God has revealed everything that you and I need to know about him today to live faithful, godly lives through his word. And his word is now what encourages us, it is what equips us, it is what comforts us in trials. And his word should have a very similar impact on our lives as it does to the disciples as they see God reveal himself through God has not changed. How he works, how he reveals himself has. God himself has not changed. And so God is revealing himself to these people. He's revealing himself to the disciples, but he's also revealing himself to the outsiders. And they see it, and they're like, what is going on here? <coughs> so how do you encourage yourself with God's revelation? If you and I are to have a similar impact, and I'm not saying a similar impact and then you'll have 3,000 people come in one day through your testimony to Christ. But if you're going to see the word of God multiply in your life, if you're going to see people coming to know Christ through your testimony, through your faithfulness, how are you going to be equipped by, encouraged by, strengthened by the word of God? going to require that you take time meditating upon God's word. It's going to require that you take time learning from God's word. It's going to take time by you memorizing God's word and understanding and knowing God's word so that you too are enamored by the revelation of God. So that you too look at it and you're like, this is so cool. This is so powerful. This transforms I know it because it's transformed my life. 
doesn't stop there. It's interesting. This revelation of God was not sufficient for the people to be saved. And this is a cool revelation of God. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that most of us would love to have been able to be in that upper room. Or even be on the streets and just heard the sound of that take place and be part of that crowd that like comes rushing in. I mean, they didn't even have jet aircrafts to like somewhat imitate like a crazy, mighty wind that comes from the sky. Like this was crazy. And they come running to see what's going on. And it's God revealing himself. But it wasn't enough to save them. It wasn't enough to rescue them from the consequences of their sin. Their sin still condemned them to an eternity in hell. And the disciples knew that, and you and I need to know that as well. Rarely will someone see God reveal himself in some way, and that alone be sufficient. Very often it requires that the people of God use the word of God to communicate through the spirit of God, the truth of God, which then opens people's hearts and makes them children of God. Right? That's how that works. And so it's not shocking to us that the disciples model for us engaging the concerns of people. Look with me at the following verses. Verse 12, what's the problem? They're like, what's going on and how and why? Like, this is cool, yeah, but what is going on? And so they ask these questions to the people. And there's, there's some of the people that are looking on that are you know, proselytes and some of them who are devout Jewish men who have come and visited the town and they're like, this is super cool. God is doing something. And then there's another group of people that are like, these guys are nuts. They've had one too many and it's way early in the morning. Look at verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Like, They've, they've hit the beer, and that's what the problem is. They just, they've gone crazy. And the disciples take time to engage their concerns. It's interesting, though, that as they engage their concerns, they do not get caught up in the concerns. Peter's going to come in, he's going to succinctly answer their questions and explain, nope, it is not new wine. In fact, it's only 9 a.m., people, like, most Jews didn't eat a peat by 9 a.m., much less start drinking by 9 a.m. Like, no, that's not what's going on. Instead, what's going on is God is revealing himself, and your Bibles tell you that God is going to someday reveal himself in a similar, dramatic fashion. And why would you doubt that God could reveal himself in such a way today? And so God's revelation raises questions among the observers. What could this mean? They are full of new wine. And they are amazed and confused at what they are observing, and people want answers to their objections. And so what happens is Peter comes alongside these people who want answers to the questions that they have, and he provides them with an answer. He brings them along, starting where they are, helping them to understand what they have.
become missing in their worldview so that they can come to a place where they realize their need, they are sinners, and they're God's condemnation. And that Jesus Christ is the Savior who's provided the way for their need. He died for their sins so that they can place their faith in him, receiving his righteousness, and become children of God with no fear of death. And so Peter comes alongside them, and Peter takes time to honestly address each concern. Verse 14, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour, i.e., i.e., 9 a.m. Oh, third hours. It's like, no. And then he tells them, hey, this is what Joel says is going to happen. I do not believe, okay, let, me, let me clarify, I do not believe that Joel, that he quotes here, is being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. I believe that Joel is a reference to something that will happen at the day of the Lord. That's why he uses day of the Lord terminology in Joel. But what Peter is saying is, Look what Joel says is going to happen in the coming day. And if Joel says this can happen in the coming day, why can't God do something similarly in our day? If you look at the prophecy that he gives, some of those things you would be very hard-pressed to say are being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And then you have the day of the Lord terminology, which is typically very eschatological language, that is, end times language, those things combined lead me to say, and he's using it as an analogy, and saying, if God can do that then, why can't he do something very similar now? And so this is what he tells the people. Hey, look, your scriptures say that God can work in marvelous ways. So how does he say, how does Joel say that God will someday work? He says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not all flesh are saved in Acts chapter 2. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I shall show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall and so he answers their objection. He says, God is revealing himself to you. This is God making himself known to you. And you would be foolish to observe God revealing himself to you, my fellow countrymen, and to turn around and go unchanged. To continue maintaining the same views you currently have about who God is after God has miraculously revealed himself in So it's a rebuke, it's a warning, it's a challenge for them to then say, okay, if God is revealing himself, is God, if God is making himself known in this way, in this time, how will we respond? Will we choose to embrace God's message, or are we going to say, you know what, maybe another time? And so he tells them, you have to respond. God is working in history through unique special circumstances to reveal himself to mankind. God is not limited 
what he can do can't do. God has chosen to limit himself at this time. And so there are some things that he does not do. And that's because he's personally chosen to limit himself in some way. He does not use tongues. But what he's saying is God chose at this time to use his spirit to fill people, and now we are speaking in tongues. And it's a revelation, it's a demonstration that God is working. And how dare you ears effectively say, look at this and say, this is the result of alcohol or some sort. Or that this is a supernatural event, but I'm not going to choose to believe the message of the Spirit. God will work in mighty acts in the future. And that's what he tells them going forward. He's like, God is going to work in mighty ways. Why can't he do it now? And so I think as you and I think through just how Peter effectively comes alongside people, it, it serves as a very good model for how you and I think about objections. If you start sharing the gospel with people in any way, you're going to be bombarded very quickly with lots of different questions. And how do you address those? You address the question that comes up, you answer it succinctly, you answer it fully, and then what does Peter do? He doesn't say, do you have any other objections that we should address first? No, instead he says, okay, I've effectively answered this objection. This is God revealing himself. God can do this in the future. God's doing it right now. He works marvelously. Now, the message is this. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to submit to yourself to him completely. Sometimes I think we, we get so caught up in apologetics that we become apologetics like gurus. And we're just always looking for more apologetic answers. But then we don't really know how to effectively use those. We just want to know more and more apologetic information. And the idea is you really only need to know the apologetic information for that situation you're involved in. If you're having a conversation with a family member or a coworker who brings up some sort of objection, you go and you find answers, but then once you have the answer for that objection, you move forward and you present the gospel to them. Because you've taken down that door that prevents them from receiving the gospel. You don't continually try to find other doors to tear down for them. You move forward. You've opened the door. That's what he does here. He, he acknowledges the concern, he engages the concern, and then he moves on immediately. He doesn't like give them even time to talk. I'm sure there's a little bit more engagement okay, than is portrayed here, but it's like Peter has a mission. He has a message. God's plan has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, and the Spirit is now enabling them to accomplish the mission. And Peter just has a like one-track mind, like, I have to communicate this message. This is central. This must be primary. And so he advances the message that he has been given. And so he proclaims the message. That's what he does next. And that's what you and I need to do as well. God's revealing himself. Concerns will come up, and you're going to have to engage those concerns. 
demonstrates that you love people and you care about people. But notice Paul or Peter's explanation of what has happened in Acts chapter 2 is not enough to save people. Rarely does an apologetic answer provide enough information for the person who's asking the question to actually lead them to salvation, to bring them to Christ, to help them see their sinfulness and their brokenness and help them realize that there is no way that they can fix themselves but that Christ has paved the way through his death, burial, and resurrection that through faith in him, they can receive the righteousness of Christ. That requires that we tell the message of Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, and resurrected. And so that's what Peter does. And that is what you and I must do as well. God has revealed himself. We engage concerns and openly proclaim As he proclaims the message, he proclaims the mighty acts of Jesus. He does not shrink back from any of God's mighty works. Right in verse 22, he's finished addressing the concern that they have, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. What does he say? He says, God has worked. How has God worked? God has worked through his son, Jesus Christ. And you guys didn't understand that God was working. In your sinfulness, you were blinded. You did not see who Christ was. You missed the fact that he was your Messiah, the one who has come to save you from your sins. And as a result, you willingly allowed the Messiah to be taken and crucified. But he didn't stay dead. This was to demonstrate to you that he is the Messiah. That's why David prophesied ahead of time saying, that the Messiah would not see corruption, that he would not stay in the grave, that he would be raised from the dead. He's saying, all this, all this, guess what? This will really shock you, because it's kind of a theme of all of Acts. This was God's plan. This was how God was going to orchestrate things. And guess what? Jesus followed penalty for your sins, even the sin of delivering the Messiah to be crucified, has been paid through your sin. That's what he's telling them. You can have forgiveness for your sins, even the sin of delivering the Messiah over to crucifixion, because the Messiah has died. He didn't stay dead. Because he is the Messiah. 
Your life is not your own. 
the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we're to herald the significance of this message. And that is what Peter does, along with the other disciples. He says, your life is not your own. Jesus Christ has paid for your life through his death, burial, and resurrection. And as a result, your sins can be forgiven. You can receive forgiveness of sins. You can be made righteous through Christ. You can have the title child of God. You can be an heir of God. You and I are supposed to proclaim boldly and uncategorically this message. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way. Finally now, Peter has given the message. It wasn't enough for them simply to see the revelation of God. That would not have saved them. The explanation, the apologetics behind everything that's going on was not enough to save them from their sins. They needed to hear they were sinners. They needed to hear that Jesus Christ was a great Savior. And that he saves them through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that by placing their faith in him, repenting of their sins, there is hope even for the worst of sinners. This is the message that you and I must proclaim. This is the message of hope and peace that the world yearns for. But he continues. He's proclaimed the message, but now he really calls upon them to respond to the message. He doesn't just tell them, okay, this is what's going to happen. He goes on and he says, we need to do something about this. You can't just hear the message and go on with your life. You have to respond to the message. Your heart must engage the message. It's not simply about head knowledge. It's about what happens in your heart. And so now he tells them, he calls them for a response. And so you and I need to urge listeners to make a decision. Don't use bad pressure techniques. Okay, don't sing Christian stanzas of "Just as I am" and you know, drag it out. And you know, I see the hand, I see the hand. And, you know, there's lots of bad tactics. Okay, I'm not against you playing "Just as I am" one time and asking people to raise their hands, but you don't need to make it as long as the message. Okay, that's what I'm saying. But he urges them to repent. He urges them to make a decision choose to either side with Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, or to continue on in their own path. He says, these are your two options. And he urges them to make a decision. And I think it's a result of, in part, their response to him. In verse 37, you see their response. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're like, oh, we kind of missed it. Yeah, we saw Jesus. We saw the mighty deeds that he talked about in verse 22. The miracles and the wonders and the signs which God did through him. That was all cool. But he claimed he was God and we didn't like that. We killed him. But now that you put it like this, 
changes the whole situation a bit. Like, we're guilty of this. We had a belief to believe this. What do we do? How do we reconcile ourselves before God? And the response is repentance. Repentance is the starting point. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? Like, he hasn't talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit yet, but he's like, if you do this, you can get the gift of the Holy Spirit too. The Holy Spirit can enable you to be a proclaimer of this message. It's just like another little hint that the message can't stop with you enough. Why do they get the Holy Spirit? They get the Holy Spirit so that they're enabled to accomplish the task of God. And as Peter's preaching to them, he's like, once you believe, once you repent and you receive Christ as your Savior, you'll get the Holy Spirit too. What does that mean for them? That means they're going to be the next people that are out there proclaiming the message of Christ. They're going to be the ones who are interacting with people and engaging their concerns and then saying, but Christ, Christ died for your sin. Will you believe it? So repentance is a starting point, but it does not end there. The, the responsibility continues from there. Public testimony then is demonstrated in testimony through baptism. And so repent and let everyone be baptized. Baptism will not save you. Baptism does not save you, but it is a public uh testimony that you have placed your faith in Christ, that you have changed loyalty, that you are placing your belief system in something else. No longer do you think that you are sufficient, but you're saying Christ is sufficient and I want the world to know that. That I'm trusting in Jesus, not myself. Jesus, not my boss. Jesus, not my church. Jesus, not my time in Repentance is available to all. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, this message is available. Christ died for sinners. And Paul says that he died for the worst of sinners. And Paul says he is the worst of sinners. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient for you if you will believe in this message. And the question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give up believe will earn you credit before God. And say, I give up all those futile things that I've chased, in, chased and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. It is available to all who believe. He goes on and he encourages them in 
he challenges them with many other words. He testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The word of God advances. The word of God advances and breaks cold hearts and brings them to Christ, making them teachable, moldable, and shapeable as his sons and their image. So how does the Lord want you to take the message to? Who does the Lord want you to take the message to? Who can you go and proclaim this message to and ask them, will you believe this message? Is this something that you have believed in? The, the, the message lives on. And the responsibility to proclaim it continues. God has a plan. The plan has been accomplished by Christ. And the Holy Spirit enables you and I to accomplish the plan. God continues to reveal himself. You and I will have to address objections. We'll have to address concerns. The message, though, Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected remains today. And we seek to call people to repentance. How do we live in light of, what do we do as a result of Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 41? I think you and I need to study and be enamored with God's revelation of himself. As you and I study God's word and we see who God is and we grow in our love and our delight for who God is, it makes it far easier for you and I to go and humble ourselves and tell others about Christ. Because it's intimidating to tell others about Christ. Why is it so intimidating? It's because we have such a high view of ourselves and such a very small view of Christ. Such a small view of God. Our desire for our own comfort, our own ease, our own standing in our communities is higher than our desire to see Christ elevated and and as you and I learn about who God is, and our love for and our delight in Him grows, the natural result should be that you and I will find it easier and easier to proclaim the message of God to the world. You and I must study and we must be enamored with God's revelation of Himself. You and I are going to need to provide apologetic ministry. And while I love Apologetics, I, you know, I, I get it. <coughs> the apologetic answer that you need next is the next one that you're going to be asked about. Like, you can go get a degree in apologetics. Good. What do you need right now? You need the next answer for the next person who has an objection. Unless you know an objection currently that's Preventing somebody from taking the next step in knowing Christ, then don't worry about the objections. The objections will come. There's answers to the objections. You may not know them right in the moment, but we can work through those. We can find the answers. Go and seek to proclaim God's revelation of Himself. Know the gospel and be willing to share it. 
it saddens me sometimes when you ask people, you know, what's your testimony? And we can't succinctly state the key ideas of who Jesus is, who we are, and how this all comes together. I've had conversations with people where, you know, for 10, 15 minutes, we kind of talk, and I'm like, at the end of that, I'm like, do they really understand that they are a sinner? God is a great Savior who provided his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world to live a perfect, sinless life, die on their behalf, be buried and raised again so that through their faith in him, they're declared righteous. That's it. You can share the gospel's key primary ideas in like 60 seconds to two minutes. Easily. Now, can you add on to that? Absolutely. We can talk for 15 minutes about it, too. Okay? Not quite there yet, Nikki, but... <laughs> but you can do it in like two minutes. Right? And so, know the gospel and know how to share the gospel. And then call for submission to the truth of God's word. It's not enough to just tell God's word. You and I need to call upon people to repent and to follow God's word. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself, that you continue to reveal yourself, that your plan was effective 2,000 years ago and that it is effective today. We thank you that your spirit enables us continues to send us on mission. We pray that we would be humble, obedient, and willing servants of yours who are willing to take the message that you've entrusted us with to the lost and dying.